it was a machine gun. It was while well, it was in the in a tank that had been buried into the ground, and it was in the forest. And we, I, we actually couldn't see, but we got about within maybe 25 feet of the machine gun before we they opened up on us. And the the bullets were ricocheting off of the, the trees, and I got I got hit eight times. Staff Sergeant Harold Weir nearly died that November day in 1944 in France. On the ground in severe pain and bleeding from his wounds, he tried in vain to summon the strength to throw a grenade at the enemy soldiers who'd ambushed his company. Within minutes, Weir was captured and taken to a field hospital where a German surgeon operated on him without anesthetic. Harold lived and was taken to the infamous Stalag 17, where he somehow made it through five months of fear and uncertainty. It was there that Harold was witness to the American POWs whose determination and ingenuity inspired the 1953 Hollywood movie Stalag 17. Harold made it home after the war, married, raised three daughters, and by all accounts lived a wonderful life. But he was dogged by pain, physical and mental, so severe that he seldom slept through the night. Staff Sergeant Harold Weir passed away in 2011. But you'll hear his voice in this podcast by way of an earlier Veterans Administration interview now housed at the Library of Congress. I'm joined by Harold's youngest daughter, Donna, who tells the remarkable story of how a good man finally found some peace at the end of his life. How would you describe your dad? The dad that I know, he was um, he was a very kind person, very quiet person. Um, he could be serious, um, but he also liked to joke. Um, he was very patriotic, you know, would only buy, you know, U.S. made cars. Uh, but he was just, you know, it was all about his family. Everything was about his family. So when you and your sisters were growing up, did your dad share with you as children any of his wartime experience? No, no, he never really talked about it at all. And, you know, as I mentioned, you know, we would joke about the fact that he was a disabled veteran, and I teased him about that, not really understanding everything that he had been through. But we uh, were very nonchalant about it because he never talked about it very much at all. So, so there was really never any occasion to raise no, no topic. No, I mean, you know, we knew he was a veteran, but that was really all. And it became more pronounced that he was a veteran um, as he grew older. You know, you know, as we were younger, we really didn't hear very much about it at all. But it was after he retired that we probably heard more about it. And you knew he had been wounded. Yes, yes, that I did know because, um, you know, I remember as a young as a young person, you know, like I said, putting my fingers in the bullet holes in his back and in his neck, and you know, and asking what that was, and uh, he would explain, and uh, yeah, so I knew that he and he used to tease about being a disabled veteran, so we knew that he had been shot. So. But a youngster doesn't really have any concept of what those no holes clue. meant. No, I had no clue, no clue what that really meant. When did you finally figure out what that meant? Would that come along later, um, much later? 
I really didn't get the full understanding of it until he did the interview with the Heinz with Heinz Veterans Hospital, and you know, in that interview, after the interview was done, they had us watch the interview, and and it was there that he talked about the story about, um, you know, when he was when he was taken by the Germans, that the German doctor did you know, some surgery without any anesthetic, you know, that that was the first time that I really kind of put myself in what might have happened to him. You know. Did you realize as, as a youngster or a, a young adult growing up the difficulty he had with PTSD? Or did that start more with his retirement? It definitely became more of an issue, I think, you know, because I think he had more time to think about it. Um, you know, as we were growing up, I think he was busy with everything, you know, raising three three girls and working and raising a family. Uh, so I think that kept him busy. And it wasn't until he became older. And I think when he retired, because um, I think he retired in 1985 or something like that. And so then he had like 30 years after that to really kind of um, deal with everything and have time to really sit and think about the things that had happened. So the mind kind of goes back into the past right. and he relives these things. And the consequence for him quite often was he couldn't sleep through the night. Right. Right. Yeah. That was, that was difficult for him. I mean, he often, when I, when I was still living at home, he would often get up in the middle of the night and stuff like that. Walk around. Did, did anyone, did he ever say, I'm having trouble with this. He didn't. Oh, he never that. talked about never that. It talked was a, it. a nightmare or anything like that. He never said anything like that. No. Well, some of the things that he went through now, when you look mm. at them, terrible. Uh, it's uh, it, it almost reads well as we talked about earlier. It almost reads like uh, I don't mean this in jest, but Hogan's right. Heroes. It does, yeah. Um, but some of the things he went through initially with uh, his company almost gets wiped out. Right. Our, our company was chasing the, the Germans and they were leading us into a trap. And uh, it was, we got into this forest and they uh, shelled the top of the trees and Jesus, just about the whole company was wiped out. Did you see people were hurt and uh -oh. killed? Yes, their legs were blown off and arms and, well, there was only 15 of us left in the, in the company. I, I wouldn't even scratch it. <laughs> I, you know, and he never said anything about that. And I found it interesting in the interview that he couldn't remember any of the names. And I wonder if that is some type of a block on his part, you know, because when you spend that much time with people and stuff, I'm, I'm sure that those, I know that those people are very important to him. Um, but I think that you, your memory is just traumatized by it and you can't, you just can't recall their names. So I think it was very tough, very tough for him. Tell us about how you were captured, Carol. Well, we were what we, we called a combat patrol. That night, after the 15 of us continued on and I don't remember the names of the towns there, but we did uh, capture a, a lookout. He was on the outside of the town, and uh, he led us to this one building where the, all the Germans were sleeping. And the 15 of us captured 250 Germans. This was 2.30 in the morning. They were all sleeping. <laughs> yeah. And it was 
quite a thrill to see all these guys. We didn't know what to do with them. <laughs> so what did you do to them? Well, they, they finally sent somebody up to help us get, send them back as prisoners. And then the next day, we were on a, we got some, some uh, replacements. We uh, were heading into another forest and uh, there was a machine gun. Uh, it was well, it was in the in a tank that had been buried into the ground, uh -huh. and it was in the forest. And we, I, we actually couldn't see, but we got about within maybe 25 feet of the machine gun before we they opened up on us. And uh, it was these little seedlings of trees, and the the bullets were ricocheting off of the the trees, and I got. I got hit eight times. I had two bullets in the, the neck and one in the back and one in my buttocks. And then what happened? I had gotten up to, uh, I was going to see if I could get over in the clearing there in the, in the forest and see if I could uh, throw a hand grenade at the, but before I could do that, I got, I got the bullets in my neck and I, I was picked up by the, uh, Germans and they threw me over a hood of a of one of their armored vehicles. They took me into a, an aid station, and there was a, a doctor in there, and he was all full of blood. <laughs> and he threw me he threw me on the table, and he took out this bullet without a, an anesthesia. That must have hurt like the Dickens. It did, but he took out one bullet. He didn't know there was another bullet in there, but there was a bullet laying against my spine, which I found out later. And I also have another bullet in my in my lower neck here. You still have the bullets in you? Yeah. I got to a hospital in Germany, and in that hospital there was a fighter pilot, and he he got shot down, but in the process he, he lost his leg, and he parachuted out of the, the plane, and he landed in a tree, and they cut him, cut him down, and he broke his other leg, and he was he was in such pain, and I often wonder about him, how he made out the next day or so, I forget which. I was in another world, I couldn't walk or anything. They took us on a, uh, one of these red medical trains, and uh, we went from, from there to uh, Prague, Czechoslovakia, and uh, we were in a hospital there. There was 10 of us. We were in one little ward, we were there for the whole month of December, I would say. December 1944. Right. We spent uh, about a couple of days before Christmas in Prague. Uh huh. And then we they put us on one of these uh, 48 freight cars, and they, they, we went through uh, Budapest down to uh, Stalag 17B. How long were you in Stalag 17? Well, from about Christmas time until May. And how were conditions in this German prisoner of war camp? Uh, they weren't too good. We didn't get too much to eat. In fact, I was reduced in my from 185 to about 137. So you lost about 50 pounds. <laughs> yes, but uh, the guys in there—they were all Air Force. The reason I was there was because I was a, a staff sergeant. These were all staff sergeants in this Dalek 17. But anyway, they were the, the nicest bunch of guys you'd ever want to run, ever want to run across. And they gave me uh, 18 cartons of cigarettes when I 
got in the infirmary there in Stalag 17. And I couldn't believe where they got all the cigarettes. <laughs> I still don't know where they got them all. Their ingenuity was out of this world. They had, they had radios. They were, German guards would come in and ask us how the war was going. <laughs> it was preposterous, the things they did. They, they were digging a tunnel underneath the stove. They almost got all the way out. But I couldn't do anything about it because I was in bad shape. You know, I couldn't help them out. But they would take the dirt from the tunnel and put it in their pants and walk around the parade grounds. <laughs> dad is the docile, gentle soul that he was, and that he's cast into this necessary role to fight and live or die. What do you make of that? I can't even imagine, <clears throat> I can't even imagine him being in those situations or having to, having to defend himself like that or to, you know, or to inflict, you know, pain into others. I, it's just not him. I mean, it just isn't who he was. At all. I mean, he was a very uh, kind person, and he just um, didn't have any of those types of tendencies whatsoever. Like I said, he never owned a gun at home or anything like that. And I think he held the gun while he was in the army, and then never touched. I don't think he ever touched another one after. He has, in his description, great admiration for some of the other POWs. Yes. Who were at Stalag Seventeen. Mm -hmm. The flyers and the, yeah. the guys who are using this incredible ingenuity. And somehow they magically come up with all these cigarettes and they've got radios. Okay. And the Germans go to them to ask them, what's the status of the war? <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. It is crazy, yeah. It is crazy. But he did. He spoke very admirably of the Air Force, uh, the Air Force men that were, that were with him. Because it sounded like most of the people that were there with him were from the Air Force and not necessarily, you know, from the army that he was from. And at that point, he was physically unable, unable to um, help them dig tunnels, but that's what they did. Right, yeah, and then actually carried the dirt out in their pants and dropped it out. I mean, it sounded like a movie, and there, isn't, there is even a, a Sergeant Schultz, you know? So, I mean, it's just crazy, to, you know, the stories that came from that. I can't even imagine, because he was there for, what, like, I think five, six months. Yeah, good, yeah. good bit of time. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when he's initially shot, when he's wounded, and the German doctor who operates on him without anesthetic removes right. one bullet, I think, and that's it. Right. Now, for the rest of his life, he lived with bullets in him. He did. Yes, he did. And um, and actually, um, you know, like he had shrap. Uh, well, he also had shrapnel in his neck because that would impact, um, you know, like getting MRIs or getting anything done in, you know, as he got older. I mean, you couldn't do certain, you couldn't have certain tests because of the shrapnel that was still left in him and stuff. So, yeah, it was it definitely uh, a lingering pain for him. Did he ever complain about that? Uh, the physical pain, yes. yes, he did, he did. But he never talked about the source of the pain. He just, you know, it was just, you know, he, he would always be rubbing his neck or, you know, um, I mean, he was he definitely suffered physical pain from it. Imagine after the Russians are coming and mm -hmm. so they, the prisoners at Stalag 17 
are marched out by the remaining German guards who I guess abandoned them after a while, but they make them walk right. all that way. And your dad, I would imagine even four or five months after the emergency surgery on him, right. such as it was, probably had a really hard time walking all that distance. I think, what did they say, 20, 20 miles a day? Right, yeah. It, yeah, that's what he said in the, in the interview. It sounded awful, it sounded terrible. How can you make it through that? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, on a good day, I wouldn't be able to walk 20 miles a day. And I can't imagine how you do that, you know, after everything that you have just suffered for months on end. I just don't know how you do that. after you got out of that Stalag. They marched you from the Stalag. Yes. Did you get food during the walk? No. No food for 20 days? Well, we used to scrounge around. They, they would uh, go through farmlands and so forth, and they would uh, bury their turnips in the, in the manure and everything, and the guys would dig it out. <laughs> and we had uh, what they call rutabagas. How did the German guards treat you? They weren't bad. They weren't too bad. Only if you 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 know screwed them up, why they they were pretty nice. We had one guy. It was called Sergeant Schultz. Just like in the uh, yeah, like in the movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> one time we were in a farm, and uh, the farmer complained that the, he was missing a couple of chickens, <laughs> and they called the Gestapo and. And the Gestapo were wondering, who's, who's got the chickens? <laughs> and uh, it was fantastic how they disposed of the feathers and everything. I still don't know how they did it, but we had a little chicken. <laughs> so that's how we uh, kept going, by their ingenuity. Tell us about the liberation. How did that happen? It was a Third Army Armored Division, I think it was, that liberated us. They, they gave us something to eat, but they told us not to eat too much, and they had some fried chicken, and it was, it was delicious. But the doctor said, "Don't eat it," <laughs> but I, you couldn't help but eat it, and uh, it went right through you. <laughs> Tell me, is that how do you think you survived these experiences after being so so horribly wounded? How how did you survive? It was kind of difficult. <clears throat> I don't know. It just what got you through this tenacity to get home. <laughs> it's because of his tenacity to get home. That was his line, tenacity uh, to get home. Yeah, yeah, and that was before he had a family too, so, you know, he was not married when he was in the Army, so. So he comes home, mm-hmm. and he gets a cab, I guess is his <laughs> recollection, and his dad had taken the day off of work mm-hmm. to greet him. Yeah. But it was kind of a stumbling greeting, as it turns yeah, out. Yeah, Grandpa got excited to see see Dad get home, and he ran across the yard and um, fell in this like the storm drain before they had sewers in Chicago, I guess, and uh, broke his broke his leg as oh. he was running across to say Dad. Yeah, see Dad. Yeah. 
<laughs> I can, I can, to, I can totally see that. And I get, you know, when you think about it, we just don't have the communication lines that we do now. And so they didn't know that they didn't know whether dad was still alive or not. They didn't know where he was. As I mentioned, you know, we had the telegram announcing that he, you know, that he was missing. And, uh, that was, you know, that was the communication that they had was a paper telegram. And your, your grandparents had to have presumed at that point that he was lost. That, I mean, yeah. you fear the worst. You know, and honestly, we never talked to, you know, I've never had an opportunity to talk to my grandparents about about it because, you know, they they had died, early, you know, so many years earlier that we never had an opportunity to talk to them about it because dad wasn't talking about it yet. Did your mom ever discuss with her girls the agonies that your father was going through later in life when he couldn't sleep? Um, that I don't know. I don't think so. You know, it's like really back then, nobody really talked too much about feelings and how, you know, people felt about things. So, um, whether or not my mom talked to her sister or her brother, I don't know. Um, I really don't know. It's interesting how that's changed now Mm -hmm. to a large degree. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, people verbalize things much more now. When you became really aware Mm -hmm. of everything that he'd gone through, and you'd seen the interview that he did back in 2002. And then along comes Honor Flight, mm-hmm. and you thought, eh, I think that might do Dad some good. <laughs> Tell me what happened. I did. Well, I tried to talk to him about it, and he really didn't have any interest in doing the Honor Flight. He um, he would say that he was worried about leaving his, his sweetheart at home. He didn't want to leave my mom home alone, and so he wasn't going to go if... if Uh, you know, and mind you, my mother didn't need anybody to stay with her. It wasn't that, you know, it wasn't that she was physically unable, uh, unable to do it, but he just didn't want to leave her for the day. And so that was what he said. He's like, no, he's like, I don't really want to do it. And so, um, I decided to just take it upon myself to get the forms and fill out the forms and submit the forms. And I think I told him just a couple of days beforehand, so. What did you do when you filled out the form? <laughs> well, I might have signed his name. I'm, you know, <laughs> not sure. <laughs> May have. Okay, but, so when you told him, Dad, you're going, what well, did he you say? Know, at, at that point, we had told him that we had, you know, you know, my sisters were going to stay with my mom, and so my sisters were going to stay with my mom all day. So I think that once he understood that part of it, I think he was feeling better about it. He always had a very warm spot spot in his heart for Washington, D.C. He spent a lot of time there with his job. And so I think he was looking forward to spending some time in Washington, D.C. I mean, he was familiar with, you know, many of the monuments and things that were there. Um, but he hadn't seen the World War II memorial. He hadn't been there since that point in time. So he was very excited, you know. So, he's, so he started to get excited about it. But we didn't give him really a ton of notice, if I remember correctly. It was just a couple of days. Well, the day comes, mm-hmm. and you go to Midway early in the morning. Very early. And you get on the flight, and you're off to Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. What was the day like for oh, him and for you? Oh, my gosh. Um, it was just such a wonderful and moving experience all day long. All day long, I just heard, you know, I mean, from the moment they were, they were wheeled into, you know, my dad was uh, doing it in a wheelchair just because it was just easier. And, uh, I mean, the, the way their eyes would light up every time that they were, they got into the airport and they saw the people, you know, when they were leaving, it, it was just, 
uh, incredible. They were just so excited about it. My dad would say to me, he's like, how did they do this? How did they get all these people to do this for us? And they're doing it just for us. Why are they doing this for us? You know, they just didn't. And the other veterans were saying the same thing because as a I was fortunate enough that I was able to go with him on the plane. And I was also assisting with a couple of other uh, veterans that were on the flight. And they all had the same response, which was they were just... Um, they were just incredulous at the amount of effort that people put in and people just people who weren't even a part of it but who were at the airport or who were at the monuments and they were just so excited my dad would get on the bus and off the bus and on the bus and off the bus and he just never showed he just didn't tire that day I mean he just wanted to see everything he wanted to enjoy everything um and he enjoyed being with the other veterans that day. So it was, he got to see things that he hadn't seen before. So he was very excited. That part about getting with other veterans mm-hmm. and sharing their stories is mm-hmm. extremely important ingredient in all this. So did it he, was. Did he, he do did. a bit of that? And he, it was good for him because, um, again, he was a quiet person. And it was nice, it was really nice to see him engage in conversation with the other veterans to find out, you know, like right away, you know, it's like, you know, what division, what, you know, what division were you in? What did you do? Where were you? He asked anybody that he was near, he would ask. And so it was good. And I think it was good for the others too, to engage in that kind of conversation. Probably pretty emotional for you too, wasn't it? It was, yes, very much. So. I mean, I was just, I, I was more exhausted than he was at the end of the day, because it was just such an emotional experience all day long. It was just amazing. I mean, I, I must have used that word. I don't know how many times during the day. It was just, it was just incredible. What an amazing experience for everybody. Did he ever turn to you and say, thanks, Donna? Or perhaps where words may not be necessary, he expresses oh my his goodness. thanks in other um, ways. I remember at one point in the bus, we were in the bus and he just, I'm going to cry, but he just put his arm around my shoulder and he's just like, you know, thank you. And it was just really sweet. It was very sweet. So you get home, and there's mm-hmm. a big party to greet them all oh, at the airport. Oh, my goodness, yes. Well, first, um, actually, one of the other moving, one of the very moving experiences before we even got back to Midway on the return flight was um, when the plane is landing, how they, I don't know if they've done it on your flights, where they, they dim the lights, and then everybody starts singing some of the songs from, you know, from that era. It was just so incredibly moving. But even before that, they do the mail call. And they hand the envelopes out and his reaction to the, you know, the mail call was just, it was just amazing. He opened it up and he's just like, where did, you know, how did this happen? Where did you get all this from? And I mean, we, I couldn't, I couldn't read the letters to him at that point. I was just, I was just crying. Were you sobbing? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was just so amazing. And then, um, and then we land and then uh, they go through the airport and they've got the bagpipes and they've got, um, oh my gosh, they had so many, so many people. And then they had the people in the service who were still, you know, in their uniforms, escorting them off the plane and bringing them down. It was just amazing. And then when he got to the part where he saw his family waiting for him and thank goodness, you know, because it was his grandchildren, it was his, uh, nephews and nieces and, um, his, you know, his wife, his sister-in-law. I mean, everybody was there for him. It was just, amazing. I bet he was teary-eyed, huh? I I 
think I I lost him at that point, <laughs> but I do think he was just so excited. I mean, he just he was he had so much energy at that point. He was just amazing. And that excitement translated into uh, what came afterwards. He wanted all you guys to get together to keep going. He did, yeah. Because when my sister and brother in law took him home. Uh, he took him and my mother home. He wanted them to come in for a drink, and it was after midnight. And they're just like, "No, we'll, you know, we'll catch up with you later." But uh, yeah, no, he his excitement continued. Did you meet the next day? Actually, I went to work the next day. Um, I talked to my I talked to my mother then uh, during the day, and she said that you know your father is reading. You know now he had an opportunity to read the letters from the mail call. She said he's sitting there and he's just reading all the letters over and over again. He's crying. You know he's just so moved by the experience and can't believe you know everything that everybody did for him. But that night, when when you return, he went to bed. He did, and he slept through the night. He did, he did, and then yeah, he did. He slept through the night, and it did give. I think it gave. We didn't get a chance to talk about it, um, because then things, ha- you know, things life changed. You know, the next, you know, the next day. So we didn't get an opportunity to discuss it. So. Then that next day, he went to bed. Mm-hmm. The following night. Yeah, I um, like I, I was telling you, I ran in. I ran into work early that morning to send an email out to everybody to thank them for their involvement. Um, you know, to my cousins, my sister, you know, my nieces and nephew to you know say thank you for, you know, your involvement in the day for dad. Um, that he was, you know, he wanted to keep mom posted throughout the day with pictures of everything that he was experiencing throughout the day. And so I had just, you know, wanted to make sure that I, I said thank you to everybody. And I remember sending the email at 8.14 in the morning. And within the hour, I got a phone call from my mom that uh, she couldn't wake my dad up. He had died in his sleep. He, he died in his sleep. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about that? Uh, I... I smile because I'm glad that I think he had some peace at the end, and I think it was a very, uh, his last 48 hours were incredibly joyful for him. So, you know, I'm excited for him that, you know, that that was how it went out, quite frankly. But it was a stunner nonetheless. Absolutely, absolutely. Never would have, you know, we were talking about it, you know, because my dad was such a quiet person that on the drive home, my husband and I talked about the fact that we were looking forward to, that because it was in November, that we were looking forward to Thanksgiving because we knew that my dad would have so much to talk about, you know, because he was he had experienced so much during that day that we were looking forward to Thanksgiving to have that opportunity to talk to him about every, you know, with other people about what had happened that day. You're enormously proud of your dad. He's a good guy. He was a very good guy. He was a great father. Yeah, he was a good guy. What do you want people who did not know him during his life to know about him? Um, that's he silently. He was a very kind man. I think I told you about some of the things. You know, he would. Um, he liked to do kind things for people without a lot of pomp and circumstance. You know, he would um, help neighbors without making a big deal out of it. Um, 
He would pick up the newspaper and bring it to their front door. He would stop and talk to people. He would shovel people's driveways. He would, um, you know, sit out on the patio with his neighbors and, you know, have a, have a cocktail in the summer with his neighbors. He was always a good neighbor. He was a good father. He was a good man. He's the humble father and husband who comes home after enduring a horrific experience that physically and mentally changed his life. Nonetheless, he goes on to live a good life. He did. Of giving to other people. Yeah, he did. That's pretty cool. Yeah, we were very lucky. We were very lucky. Thanks for sharing your story. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to get to know him more. I miss him. It's been almost 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Thank you. Our thanks to the Library of Congress for making available the 2002 interview with Harold Weir. We hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.